Our scripture passage today is going to be Acts chapter 20 and Paul's statement to the Ephesian elders. Listen to the word of God starting in verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I do not consider my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that by your power, Holy Spirit, you give us understanding regarding this text and regarding how to live out the reality of Christ. So come and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last few weeks I've been talking to you about shepherding and to shepherd somebody or a, a group, whether you're a parent or a community group leader or an elder or a pastor or in any position of authority. And all of us, to one degree or another, if we're believers, have positions of authority where we speak to other people and we represent Christ. So really this hits everybody some more than others. But I've said that, that, that when we shepherd, we shepherd God's people uh, is the sober-minded, joy-filled responsibility of nourishing them in the Word and tending their souls. You nourish them in the Word and you tend their souls. And, and as you nourish in the Word and tend their souls, you say that really the, the first commandment that the Lord gave us is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our might. And so we want to push people continuously ourselves to, to, to love the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to see the beauty of all that God is for us in the face of Christ. Therefore, uh, love is a whole-souled movement, heart, soul, strength, and mind, whole-souled movement in the life of the believer, which leads to adoration, requisite emotions, chiefly joy, oftentimes repentance, brokenness over sin, but requisite emotions, thanksgiving, obedience that flow from Scripture, an understanding of the Word of God. And so the next three weeks, God willing, we're going to be in Acts chapter 20 as we discuss this issue of shepherding. Then I'm going to suggest this morning that Paul is a model of shepherding and read and think through that in Acts chapter 20, a, sh a model of shepherding. And there is... When it comes to this issue, there, there should be a moral, personal, existential seriousness about, about these things. That's why Paul said, I taught you 
in person. I taught you from house to house. I taught you, he could have said, in the synagogue. I taught you in the marketplace. I said, I, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable for you. And, and really bracket, we could say, because the welfare of men and women and boys and girls depends upon the understanding and the application of the message of Jesus. Because eternity in heaven or hell depends upon understanding the greatness and the majesty of the forgiveness of sins through the work of Christ alone. So this is serious stuff. So, so sh shepherding should fill us with a sense of gravity. That's why he says in verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish my race, my course, the Lord Christ has given to me. Says, this is what I'm panting for. This is who I am. A called out disciple of Jesus who's living with moral sobriety and seriousness and gravity. And so I'm going to suggest just three things this morning out of this text. And that is the shepherding model includes humility, tears, and not shrinking back from declaring everything is profitable for other people that the Lord has given us. First of all, humility. In a marvelous statement, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis makes a very well-known statement where he says, when you, when you meet a really humble person, it's not going to be, he says, the type of greasy person that's always talking about how unworthy they are. He says, when you meet a really humble person, you're going to be impressed that they're concerned about you and your welfare, and you may come away a little bit envious that people can live with such joy and self-forgetfulness. So that's humility. I think he's right. Augustine, the great teacher in the early church who died in 430, was a professor of rhetoric, and he said, if you were to ask me the three laws of being a great rhetorician, it would be pronunciation, pronunciation, pronunciation. He said, likewise, if you were to ask me, what are the great standards for the Christian disciple of Jesus? He said, I would say it's humility, humility, humility. And humility is self-forgetfulness in light of the glory of all that God is for us in Christ. There's a man named Paul Johnson. He's a British historian. I've read his books with profit, especially my favorite book is Modern Times, written 25 years ago about the 20th century. But anyway, Paul, Paul Johnson, British historian, wrote a 200-page book on the life of Napoleon. I read it recently and this is what he says as he brings it to close. Napoleon, of course, the great leader in France who, who was defeated ultimately at Waterloo and died on the island of Elba in 1821 for a decade and a half. He terrorized all of Europe uh, with conquering armies. This is what he says. This is what Johnson says about, uh, about Napoleon. And this is the way he ends the book. And it really was a startling close. So just listen to what he says. The great evils of Bonapartism, Napoleon and his mindset, which is the deification of force and war, the all-powerful centralized state, the use of cultural propaganda to exalt the autocrat, i.e. Napoleon, the marshalling of entire peoples in the pursuit of personal and ideological power, came to hateful maturity only in the 20th century, which will go down in history as the age of infamy. It is well to remember the truth about the man, Napoleon, whose example gave rise to modern-day totalitarians, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong. 
and to strip away the myth and to reveal the reality. Now, now listen to this. this. I thought this was starting. This is the way he closes the book. We have to learn, again, the central lesson of history, that all forms of greatness, military and administrative, nation and empire building are as nothing, indeed are perilous in the extreme without a humble and contrite heart. I went, wow, Paul Johnson, historian. And he says the, the, the chief requisite for, 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 for leadership, according to Scripture, is a humble and contrite heart. He says, so out of the gate, Paul says, I serve the Lord with humility. So, so my question is, if humility is self-forgiveness and, and Christ's exaltation, how do I get there? Let me mention three things. And the subhead of humility. Number one is, if I'm to be a humble person, I must meditate and think deeply on the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, you've heard this example probably, but when you, when you trace the thought of the Apostle Paul, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, verse 9, I am the least of all the apostles. So, okay. That's kind of like saying, I was only a starter on the 1925 New York Yankees, the greatest team to ever play baseball. You're still on the team. So, so then you, three years later, he writes the book of Ephesians. And he says in Ephesians 3, verse 9, I am the least of all the saints. Wow. And then five years later, one of the last books Paul wrote, 1 Timothy 1, he says this. I'm the chief of all sinners. You go, whoa. And as I look at that, here's my conclusion. The closer you get to the cross and the more you know yourself, the more you grow in humility. The closer you get to the cross, the more you know yourself, the more you will grow in humility. I was just thinking about First Peter and how Peter says that, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 3, uh, who, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to obtain an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. And I said, you know, whatever you put that together, how you put it together, is the, the, the very basic fact is this, that God opened our eyes to see the beauty of Christ. So he, he opened us up to see the beauty of Christ as we heard the gospel, and not only has he saved us, but he sustains us, he keeps us. We're receiving an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith. And I, I thought, boy, I, I should be a humble person, because it's only the sustaining grace of God that leads me. And a couple of weeks ago, this is what Spurgeon said in morning and evening. He said, he said under the most happy circumstances, you could not give light for another hour or get light for another hour unless fresh oil of grace is given to you. And under the most positive of circumstances, you couldn't go on an hour apart from the grace of God. And so, so my, my get to know the gospel, glory in the cross. It's hard to be arrogant when you stand at the foot of Jesus the foot of the cross. Number two, know yourself. Now, 
People who really know the Bible, know the mind of God, could never work for Hallmark. They just can't. It's just, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. It, you just can't. And so, listen, this is what John Calvin says in the very first part of the Institutes. I think he's absolutely right. He says, our feelings of ignorance, vanity, want, weakness, and corruption remind us that in the Lord and none but he dwell the true light of, of wisdom, wisdom and solid virtue and exuberant goodness. We are accordingly urged by our own evil things to consider the good things of God. And indeed, we cannot aspire to him in earnest until we've begun to be displeased with ourselves. I, I, I think he's right. We cannot aspire to him in earnest until we are displeased with ourselves. Um, know yourself. Now, I operate on this principle frequently, to my shame, and that's selective memory and selective comparison. For example, this may have happened in your home. I'm not saying this ever happened in our home, but it's, it's happened in some homes I've been told. You're having disagreement with your spouse, and you say, in my case, since I'm married to Sarah, I'd say, well, you know, the, the last line of defense, 98% of the women in America would be glad to be married to me. <laughs> How's that for a demographic precise statement? To which your spouse might say, well, count me today in the 2%. So it's, it's selective memories or selective comparison. Let's say that you're a senior in high school and you've worked hard and, and it's a notable achievement, but you make a, a regional orchestra or maybe an all-state orchestra on the cello. And, and you're really feeling good about being a cellist. Is that the right word? Cellist? Okay, cellist. And, and so what you do is you say, I am really good. And you compare yourself to a first-year cellist in the third grade, and you feel really good about yourself. You don't compare yourself to this guy, Yo-Yo Ma. In fact, you don't compare yourself to Yo-Yo Ma when he was six years old playing the cello because he's a virtuosa. See, we're very careful about our comparison. By the way, he plays on a cello that's made in 1733 and is worth 2.5 to $3 million dollars. I read that. I'm, I'm going to write Yo-Yo Ma this week. I'm going to tell him about our building program. <laughs> so, you know, if you sell, sell that cello, we'd, we'd, that'd be it. Anyway, so just, why not? But, but selective, selective comparisons. And that's why we need to be in the presence of the Lord. I, I think of the Apostle Peter, I, I refer to this passage frequently, but the Apostle Peter, fishing all night, book five, nothing, dead tired, is coming in. Jesus, who's a carpenter by trade, says, throw your nets out one more time. Now, you realize this isn't a cast net throw. This is huge nets. They require multiple men to let them down. And Peter says, Lord, we fished all night. We've done no good whatsoever. But because you tell us to do, we will do it. And all the time, I know he's complaining in his heart. He says, really? 
And the Bible says they let down the nets, and they had so many fish, they had to call another boat over because their boat was about to sink. And, and Peter, who's just hit the, the economic bonanza of his life, we're talking about a lot of money in those nets. I mean, a lot of money. Forgets that. He falls on his knees before Christ. He says, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. And, and, and this is Luke 5, early in the ministry of Jesus. This is Peter catching just a glimpse, a, a brief glimpse of the majesty of Christ. Nothing compared to what he knew of the crucified, resurrected, ascended Lord who poured out the Holy Spirit. And so this, this brief glimpse of Christ unhinges him. Or I think of the book of Job. After Job goes through this incredible turmoil and has all these counselors come in to give him almost worthless advice. And then the Lord speaks to Job at the end of the book. And Job says this in Job 42. He says, Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me, O Lord. I, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. For I, I know you're God, and I'm a creature, and I repent of my waywardness. I repent that I've questioned you in, in dust and ashes. And so, so I, I say to myself, self, I need to get a vision of the glory and goodness of God. So, so see the cross, know yourself, and thirdly, as that happens, we, we minister out of glad-hearted weakness. It's an oxymoron, but it's true. Glad-hearted weakness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, when I'm weak, I'm strong. Oxymoron. Glad-hearted weakness. And here's what I mean. There's a passage in the book of Galatians. Galatians 6, verse 1 and 2. It says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, go and restore him. And do it in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourselves. Least you two be tempted. Bear one another's burden. Fulfill the law of Christ. That's what the church does. We bear each other's burden. But it says if, if a brother is caught in any transgression of any type, anywhere, anytime, you who are spiritual, the leaders, the elders, the, 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 the acknowledged leaders, you, you who are spiritual, go and restore him and restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And part of that is you keep watch over yourself, at least you two be tempted. You, 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 you do it knowing that it's only by the grace of God you stand. And, and so you minister to people out of glad-hearted weakness. That's what we do. That's who we are. So you minister with humility. And then secondly, he says with tears. Tears. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah said this. He said, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears and I might weep day and night for the slain of my people, the daughter of my people. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears. That's Michelangelo's depiction of Jeremiah in the Sistine Chapel the weeping prophet, because judgment was coming upon his people. 
The psalmist says in Psalm 119, I shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, the Jews, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, those who did not believe. I think about that church, and I go, you know, tears. And some of us aren't necessarily weeping people, but Paul's talking about deep emotion over people who are going the wrong way. Deep, heartfelt emotion for people. And that means you're involved in people's lives. And that means that you are sober-minded about the truth of God. And one of the things that I lament about our culture and it's, every, every one of us operates under this sort of Damocles, and that is the information overload that just inundates us. And I'm going to say fight against it. For example, you read about a jihadist in northern Nigeria that blows up a market or kidnaps 20 young girls for sexual slavery, and while you're dealing with that, you read about some dear immigrants who are trapped and suffocate to death in a van that's found in Austria, and then the next day you, you read about a, a bus that went over a cliff in Peru, and it goes on and on and on. And my, my concern is I, I, I don't give myself the time to really feel the depth and the hurt of people, because you're always going to the next thing. Now, let me just say this. It is a long way to the general election. Do not give too much time to this election yet. And good grief. Are you going to sentence yourself the next 14 months to watching Fox or CNN two hours every night? My personal opinion. There's a whole lot more to be concerned about than, yeah, nothing. I'll stop. Just, but just see what I'm saying. There are, I want to feel deeply. I want to hurt for people. And one thing you fight with as you get older is just cynicism. Because you've seen it done, you've heard it done, it goes round and round. I heard two times this week, twice this week, I've had a Christian leader that's fallen into open sexual sin. Twice. And I thought, God help us. But I don't want to say, oh, well, good people are people. And I just ask you, are we emotively feeling with people? We look at a people, and they're, they're going the wrong way. Let me tell you, I'm getting older, and I'm seeing how a decision made 30 years ago damns the next two generations, damns them. Or I'm seeing how decisions made today bless the next two generations. It's amazing to me. And so I just want to just say to myself, and to you live with glad-hearted obedience to Jesus. Because the destiny of people hang in the balance. I believe that. What we do as a church, the way we live our lives, the way we care for each other. It's so important. And then he says this. He says, I, as, as I wept and as I walked in humility, I did not shrink from declaring anything to you that was profitable for your soul. And I, I just, I was reading this week about, about a wonderful woman who passed away recently named Amy Cass. She was professor of uh, literature, really the great books at the University of Chicago for 34 years and then at St. John's College in Annapolis. And, and there are some wonderful statements written about her life by some of her students in a journal I read. This is what, let me just read you two paragraphs. 
It was among her deepest held convictions that the works of the great writers of the Western world over time, if you read them, had the capacity to elevate your thoughts and aspirations to encourage you to better reason, to feel better, to seek better, to become better. Through such works, this education is available to everyone throughout their lives. And she, she just believed it. I think she's right. If we read great works and think about them and ponder them, it will make us better people. And then another writer said this. said, as she taught, and taught so brilliantly, she was above all else a teacher with the patience and humility that teaching requires. Humility before the text and the author under consideration. I just stopped. I thought, Humility before the, the text. The belief that great literature elevates the soul, and I believe that's a proper thought. How much more should I have a commitment to teaching the timeless, inerrant, infallible Word of God to people that will profit their souls? And the word for profit means to bring together in a glorious standing. Paul says, I want to see you, you people walking gloriously before the living God, gloriously before the world, gloriously before one another. And, and how much more should I, I, I approach the text with humility and say, Holy Spirit, I can't understand this unless you give understanding. Church, don't shrink back, pull back from declaring anything that's profitable, that builds people up that gives them hope and diligence. There's a man named Christian Smith, he's a professor of sociology at Notre Dame, an accomplished writer. Ten years ago now, it's hard to believe it's been ten years, he co-authored a book entitled Souls in Transition. And it was a look at the youth of America, teenagers at that time. So in ten years, those teenagers are now young adults. And, and so they, they did a demographic exhaustive study of uh, these 3,000 teenagers, all who were in church or acquainted with church. And, and he came away with, with this statement. He said, today's youth, this is 10 years ago, believe in what they called morally therapeutic deism, or MTD. Morally therapeutic deism, very quickly, uh, he said, had, had five pillars. I'll get a couple of them. He says that, that, that God is good and kind and loves you, that God is not involved in your life unless you want him to be, that God wants you to be nice and kind, that good people go to heaven. Uh, the other one is that the central goal of life is to be happy about yourself and to feel good about who you are. That's what they believed in. And, and there's aspects of that that's true, but that's a far cry from what the Bible says. And he goes on, he says this, he's a, he's a sociologist, he says, he says, the language, therefore, and the experience we're talking about the Trinitarian nature of God, holiness, sin, grace, justification by the cross, sanctification, the church, heaven, and hell appear among these Christian teenagers 10 years ago, at the very least to be supplanted by the language of happiness, niceness, and earned heavenly reward, close quote. That's from the book. And one writer saying about this said, if this is true, we're going to see the church colonized by a new thought system. The true church is placed by a different type of religion. And I would say to you that to a degree, that's where many people are going. Let me, let me explain. I, I, I want to be kind here, but I'm going to be honest. 
So what happens? I've seen this through the years. The culture goes this way, and the church says, we need to be, we need to be trendy, so we're going to go that way. We're always eight years behind. It's kind of like fashion hits Paris. Three years later, it hits L.A., and 15 years later, it hits Charleston. You know, we're always, you know, you know, whatever. That's the church. church culture goes this way. Church says, well, example. Late 60s, we had something called the sexual revolution. And basically, it was sexuality is no longer for marriage. It's to be used however you see fit. And so the culture goes that way. People living together who profess the name of Christ were basically didn't happen. So the culture goes there, and then the church comes along a few years later and says, you know, maybe a lot, of, a lot of people in the church maybe came up with something called the ethics of intimacy, which is from the pit of hell and smells like smoke and stinks. Okay? The ethics of enemy says that intimacy says sex is a wonderful gift, and you should never share it unless you really care for the person that you're with. Again, that's just a lie. It's a lie. And then... Certain people started writing books. One guy who was a heretic named Spongs wrote a book called The Case for Living Together, which there is none. But, but see, how the church, you know, we just kind of go along, and then we give an uncertain note, and that's what happens. And so you, you and, and, then, and then we have the last years especially, the last 80 years or so especially, many churches saying, really, to say that Jesus is the only way to be saved is pretty narrow. The problem is the Bible teaches that. That Jesus was very clear on that. The apostles were abundantly clear on that. And so they say, well, instead of saying that you've got to believe in the cross of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, let's just tell people to be consistent with their own thought patterns and own personal commitments to be good Muslims, good Hindus, good agnostics, good Buddhists, whatever, and somehow God will, will, will accept them because God is kind. God defines kindness, and he says kindness is the cross. But you see, now large pockets of the church are, are going that way. Just, just be good. Don't worry about the cross. It happens in our own day and age. I mean, recently, the Bible's very clear, abundantly clear, that marriage is between a man and a woman for life, unless there's adultery involved or desertion without reconciliation. It's very clear. And yet, the culture is pushing the parameters, and they're saying, well, we want people to be happy, and happy maybe to let them be married in a monogamous, same-sex relationship. That whole sentence is packed with, with peril. But anyway, more about that some other time. But, 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 but now, now you have leaders in the church saying, you know what? I've evolved. And I now believe that it's okay. Listen, Christians don't evolve. Politicians evolve. Christians stay here. If you're going to evolve, just call yourself a political candidate and go for it. But don't call yourself a follower of Jesus. I've evolved. I've changed. The good people I respect kind of sort of used to. And then the, 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 the first cousin of this movement is the, the transsexual movement, which is just way out there. Which says, you know, I know the Bible says God made us male and female, but we need to be very happy. You know, this, the University of California system came out recently. This is, this, this is just, just, I don't know how to describe it. 
The University of California system, which has 10 campuses, including Cal Berkeley, one of the greatest institutions of academic learning in America, but Cal Berkeley, they, they have 233,000 students there on their 10 campuses. Amazing. Great education. Great professors. They recently came out, their new, their new statement for admittance now has uh, six different choices for your gender. I don't think George Orwell can make this up. It really is so sad to me. So male, female, trans male, trans female, gender queer, which means gender non-conforming, and other. I'm just saying go with six and save yourself some ink. And let me say that my concern, my concern is, listen, is, is I, I fear that's their presupposition suppositional base. We need to say gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. Thank God he made us male and female. It's good. And so there's a statement written in 1978. I know I'm going to finish in five, five, four minutes, maybe five. This is something uh, called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. I'm just going to give, read you the first article or, or the preface of the document. It says, the authority of Scripture is a key for the Christian church in this and every age. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are called to show the reality of their discipleship by humbly and faithfully obeying God's written word. To stray from Scripture in faith or conduct is disloyalty to our Master. Recognition of the total truth and trustworthiness of Holy Scripture is essential to a full grasp and adequate confession of its authority. I think that's right. I think that's where the church has stood for 2,000 years. The Apostle Paul wrote this in his last letter. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. See, there's the word profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for training in righteousness, for correction, that the, listen, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So I, I step back and I say, you know, what, what does a, what, what does a, based upon this text, what does a heart that is engaged in shepherding looks like? And it looks like this, whether you're a dad or a Sunday school teacher or small group leader, elder. N number one is you walk in humility. And you walk in humility by grounding yourself and glorying in the cross of Christ and the mercy he gives you. And, and part of that humility is being aware of the mercy of God to someone who's undeserving. And the more you get to know yourself, the more you live with a distrustful spirit. <laughs> And, and it involves tears. You hurt for people. You hurt for those who cannot protect themselves. You hurt for the poor. You, you hurt for these dear people in the Middle East that are being subjected to brutalities. You just hurt. And you cry out, God, what, what, what would you have me to do? Pray, but what, what, would, I, what would you have me to do? And, and then 
as you walk as a shepherd, you don't shrink back, brothers and sisters. You, you speak the truth in brokenness and love and in gentleness, but you speak the truth. You don't shrink back and play to the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. You, 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 just, you speak it out, and you live it, and you live it, and that's who we're called to be. Because it's profitable. If you want to be filled with happiness and joy and purpose and a sense of rightness, walk in the way of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, O Lord, for uh, the example of the Apostle Paul who lived in this city for three years and he taught in the temple, he taught in the marketplace, he taught house to house, he, he walked among these people, he loved them. And he's given us a paradigm for shepherding. And I pray that we as people would walk, Lord, before you in humility and that we would be people of tears and that we'd be people who love and represent your truth as men and women of God, with in brokenness and humility, but, but represent it. So, so God, give us grace and use us as a tidal wave of impact in the city and in our campuses, and in the state, and around the world, Lord, just use us um, to the glory of your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May the gospel go out in Jesus' name.